You may open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as an opening passage of Scripture. Pardon my distraction of your minds, but I want to give you a hint of something to come in the time to come as we study this subject, and that is Joel's comments to us about the higher an authority figure is, the less time they have for us. And it's true of a father with many children. He has to divide his time among the children. And, you know, the greater the number of children are, the less time there can be for each individual child. The higher a supervisor or manager of a company with more people reporting to him, the less time he has for those under his authority. And it, it goes up from mayor to governor to the president of the United States. And it's all very true. But I just want to tell you something that's coming, and that is an attribute of God that is called His divisibility. If there's one thing we believe, it's in the unity of God. There is one God and one Lord, and there's only one. However, this God is able to divide Himself in such a way that any one of us can be filled with all the fullness of God as He would define those words. He never is distracted from you by someone else. He is never divided by the number of people praying to Him at one time because your prayer has His full attention because of a trait that we're going to show from the Bible is His divisibility, meaning He's able to be available and He chooses to be available in His entirety for any one of us. Credible. So it's so different from any human authority or anybody that we've ever tried to know on earth. Their time is limited. Their energy is limited. Our God never sleeps. His time is unlimited. He can do anything for us. And we, we want to know that about Him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we are considering the fact that God is knowable and He's approachable and He desires us both to know Him and to approach Him and He's given us the means to do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where the apostle is indicting the Gentiles for their ignorance of God, which is not our problem. We can know him and should know him. Here's how the apostle would write it. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Isn't that a nice comparison between our religions? Are we all headed the same direction to the same place, just going by different roads? I don't think so, as they like to say. This is the Apostle Paul separating all human religions from God's religion and making them just unlike each other in their entirety. And we want to remember that about knowing God. The heathen don't know gods. They make up gods many, and they make up lords many, but they don't know God our Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle just says it about as plainly as it can be said, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. 
They can all be polytheists. We're a monotheistic religion. Jehovah is the only God. And so that's where we stand. But now the apostle goes further, two chapters later in chapter 10, where he says that we as Gentiles, naturally born Gentiles, when we worshiped idols as our fathers did, this is what God has to say about that worship. They were not worshiping the same God ignorantly. They were worshiping the devil. Verse 19. What say I then? What is Paul actually saying? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. The apostle in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 is dealing with that subject of controversy in the New Testament church of meat offered to idols. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, those three chapters deal with it. And Paul's pointing out that the reason we have to take this subject seriously is because the Gentiles with their idol worship are just not worshiping the true God ignorantly. They're worshiping the devil. We never want to forget that. They will try to melt down the differences between us until we're all going to the same place, worshiping the same God, just under different names. That is not what the Bible says. The Lord Jehovah will not give His glory to any other name, any other God. He looked for gods that might be like Him that He might ought to check into, but He found none. And the ten chapters in the book of Isaiah are all about that search and how He found none, and there's none even to be compared to Him. And let's stand where the Bible stands. I don't care what they call their God, the Great Spirit of the American Indians, or Buddha of the Buddhists, or Rama of the Hindus, or Allah of the Muslims, is not Jehovah. They're worshiping devils. And that's what the Lord would have us to know. This God is knowable. He wants us to know Him. He's approachable. He wants us to approach Him, and He's given us the means. He's revealed everything you need for a complete relationship with Him. So much so that as we read this morning, and I say it again, already in this second service, we can be filled with all the fullness of God by the power of His Spirit. But you better seek Him on His terms. Look at Jeremiah 29 with me. As I told you when we turned to this place some time ago, a few days ago, it's your brother Tim's favorite verse unless he's changed his mind on me. Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So this subject that we're considering, let's not let it be a little subject. Let's not just let it be another series from our pastor. Let's let it be something that gets all of our heart. We'll find him when we search for him with all our hearts. According to Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. In Matthew 15, the Savior would put it this way on the same point. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So we don't want to come in here and sing loudly. We don't want to come in here and preach loudly. I speak of myself. Our hearts had better be His. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the first commandment. 
Everything else is subordinate to that. This is one of the conditions, and I'm just very briefly, we want the condition of giving Him our whole heart. We want godly repentance and godly mourning. Look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24 with me. The Bible tells us how we can approach God. Verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? It's a good question. We all want to ascend into that hill. Or who shall stand in his holy place? These are two questions. Here's the answer. He that hath clean hands. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. Do you remember John 14, 23? If a man love me, he'll keep my words. Well, this is a man loving him that keeps his words. So we have verse 4 that says, Clean hands, pure heart. He hasn't lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He tells the truth. He's an honest man. He doesn't worship idols. He doesn't let anything distract him from the worship of the true and living God. He has clean hands. He doesn't touch things or do things that he shouldn't. He's confessed those sins whenever he has, and he has a pure heart that has one motive, and that's the glory of God. One verse stuck right there in the middle of Psalm 24 answers the question, who ascends into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place, and also answers the question, who's going to receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, and also answers the question, what is the generation of them like that seek the Lord? It's all right there in one verse. It's a powerful psalm. The Stephen Eastland family in the times past, if they haven't changed their minds on me, love psalm. Thank you. Tim didn't help me out that way. Uh, in Psalm 24, they love Psalm 24 because they love the verses 7 through 10. Who is this King of glory? Who is the King of glory? Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is how we ought to delight in Him. This is how we approach Him. James chapter 4, I've said it to you several times and you know it. Draw nigh unto me and I will draw nigh unto you. But then what does it say? Turn your laughter into mourning. Turn your joyfulness into sadness. Because we need to repent of our sins and come clean so that our hands are clean and our hearts are pure and He will receive us. It doesn't take long because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Joel reminded you, it might take long to get forgiveness from one of you. It might take long to get forgiveness from me, but it doesn't take long to get forgiveness from the Lord. Nathan came in and told that long illustration to David about the man with the little ewe lamb, and the rich sheep farmer came and took the one little ewe lamb from him. And Nathan told the story well enough, and David sat there, and when he got to the end, the man's going to die that took that lamb, and he's going to restore it fourfold. Ferocious response. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. The little ewe lamb was Bathsheba, and the little farmer that only had one ewe lamb was Uriah the Hittite. You've got a whole harem of wives, 
and you took a man's only wife. Thou art the man. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord hath forgiven thee. You say, well, that's just not right. It's just not right in your way of doing things because you wouldn't forgive someone that sinned that heinously against you, but God does because Jesus died for that sin even though Jesus wasn't yet to come for a thousand years. The Lord Jesus Christ has died for your sins past, present, and future. He's died for your sins of ignorance and He's died for your sins of presumption. Go to Him and confess them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Look at Isaiah 58. We're looking at things the Lord expects when we come to seek His face. Isaiah 58. It's a wonderful chapter. I can remember 12 years ago when that same Eastland family that I mentioned loved this particular chapter. At least the, the father of that family did. And children, know thou the God of thy father. Amen. 12 years ago, brother, I remember it. Some things slip, some things don't. And anything about the Word of God, I hope it never slips till my last breath is drawn. Isaiah 58, Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness." and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. God is mocking them for their external, outward, ceremonial, ritualistic religion of seeking Him when they didn't have it in the righteousness of their lives because He then goes on to describe their fast in verse 3 and their Sabbath-keeping and their fasts again down in verse 5 and their sackcloth and ashes and how it all makes him sick because it wasn't the fast that he has chosen. And that starts in verse 6 to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to actually do some nice things for someone. He doesn't care about you coming to church. He doesn't care about you looking like you delight in him, that you're seeking his face, that you want to know the ordinances of justice. The real ordinance of justice he wants you to show is Doing something nice for someone. Loving mercy. Walking justly. Walking humbly before thy God. It is a fantastic chapter. I exhort you to love Isaiah 58 because it describes real religion, but it's not that outward religion of what we can do in an assembly, but that other form of religion that we can do in private and in public outside this room when we can do things for others that God delights in. Then... Verse 8, shall thy light break forth as the morning. God is going to give you light no matter what your dilemma and what darkness you think you have. And thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward, meaning he's going to be on your backside. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. That's the Lord God speaking to us. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Not where I will be. What a wonderful thing. 
So the point I've wanted to make here in these three points, you better seek the Lord with your whole heart because that's what He wants. He wants all of you. He wants all of your affection, so we get Him up there first. Now, He knows we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're supposed to love our spouse. We're supposed to love our children. We're supposed to love and care for our parents. We're supposed to love the brethren. We're supposed to love our enemies. He knows all that. And that's a lot of loving. But we are first. I mean, He's first. We always love Him first and most and foremost of all our loving Any decision that we make, He's first. If we lose the love of a parent, if we lose the love of a spouse, if we lose the love of a child, so what? As long as we keep loving Him. He'll replace those children, spouses, parents with a hundredfold if we'll just keep loving Him first. So we've got to do it first. We need to to repent and godly mourn our sins so that our hands are clean and our hearts are pure. That's the generation of those that truly seek Him. And then we better guard against any hypocrisy that we come in here and pretend that we're seeking Him, but in our lives we don't show the mercy, the justice, the kindness, freeing the oppressed that we could, like Psalm 58 describes so well. I encourage you to read that psalm. I've encouraged you to read it before. That chapter from Isaiah, I mean, not a psalm, but it's a chapter there in Isaiah, the 58th. Now last Sunday in the second service, I followed a course for most of that service, and I just want to remind you of it right here. If you even modestly know God, you know more to trust about Him than anyone else. And I hope I got my point across. No one has come to me and told me that they know the most loving person ever in their lives, and they've brought their list of ten offenses. Because remember, I was going to take the ten offenses and prove that They really had a subconscious, and it really wasn't very sub, of resentment towards you for hurting them the way that you have. But see, there's a God in heaven who says He's cast your sins behind His back. They're as far as the east is from the west. It is so different. It is so better. It is infinitely better. And yet you think you know that person as a forgiving person you would think that those words could even come out of your mouth. It is unbelievable that you would even imagine something so ridiculous that you know a forgiving person, but yet you don't know God, and you struggle with Him forgiving you. You have a serious problem with blasphemy. Because in your mind and in your heart, you think there's someone on earth that forgives better than God forgives? you have a serious problem. And you ought to take whatever is inside of you and rip it out and ask by God's strength to shred it and destroy it. It is not doing you a bit of good. God forgives like no other. And it's already been said here from Isaiah 55, verses 6-9, through that His ways and His thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts as the heaven is higher than the, above the earth. And it's all about one main subject, forgiveness. The abundance of pardon. There's David. David has this whole harem. He takes a he takes a man's solitary wife. That man is out fighting the king's battle while David's home. And he not only has adultery with that man's wife, but then he kills that man so that he can have his wife. And then he lives a deceitful life of falsehood and and pretenses until the Lord comes to him. Thou art the man. After David has just said, such a man should die, 
And David said, such a man should die who just took a little lamb, let alone a wife. The Lord hath forgiven thee. Incredible. Did David live the rest of his life in just fear and terror that at any moment the bolt of lightning was going to come from heaven? And even though he had said, the Lord hath forgiven thee, that that lightning's just going to come right down through that house and find you in your bed and just explode your heart because he really still hates you for that sin. The Lord hath forgiven thee. So what did David start doing the rest of his life? Building a house for the Lord. Collecting the things for the house of the Lord. Writing psalms. Writing praise. Telling Asaph how to organize the players on instruments and the singers so that praise could be lifted up to the Lord. I'm addressing certain ones more than others in this assembly. And I beg you to consider how flagrant your thoughts are against the God of the Bible by talking and thinking about your sinfulness. I want you to show me where the Apostle Paul wasted one hour of his life ever grieving about his sins. You do not have a clue about sins compared to Saul of Tarsus. How hard it is for thee to kick against the pricks. The Lord Jesus Christ said to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, Show me. The only time you will ever read about Paul's past life is when he is using it as an illustration to convince you that you shouldn't think about your little pitiful sins. That's the only time you'll ever read about it. He is never grieving about his past. He knew whom he had committed his soul to, and he was persuaded that he was able to keep that which he had committed unto him against that day of judgment that was coming. He wasn't worried about it. He said, I know that there's a crown of righteousness waiting for me, and that same of crown of righteousness is waiting for everyone else that loves his appearing. Show me where David, after God forgave him, in Psalm 51, which is his expanded version of his confession, where he went around grieving about that sin. Show me. Show me where that's godliness embodied, you know, embodied to grieve and just whine and moan about your sinfulness. All you're doing is saying, Jesus Christ isn't enough. God isn't merciful. God isn't forgiving. God isn't faithful. That's what you're saying. That is all you're saying. It does not come from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not go around making people feel ugly about their sins. The Spirit of God goes around making people understand that Jesus paid for all their sins. And with those sins paid for, we serve Him. Jesus Christ Himself would say, This quickly, thy sins be forgiven thee. Go in peace. He doesn't say, come back in a year from now and I'll see if I've forgiven you. Grovel for a year from now. Lie in bed at night when there's a thunderstorm. Just think that it might be the night when I strike my dart through your heart. I'm not mad at anyone, but I'm mad at those thoughts because they don't come from you. And they don't come from the Holy Spirit. So you figure out who you have let into your heart by your foolish thoughts. Just think about it. That is not how God operates. That is not the God of the Bible. You have found yourself a different God because it gives you some perverse, twisted sense of pleasure of thinking about yourself as a constant sinner. 
Show me. Show me David. David committed some horrific crimes. David committed a sin that cost 70,000 lives. What sin have you committed that's cost any lives lives yet? Help, help me out. Oh, yeah, we're still talking about your little ridiculous ideas of sin. Think about David. Why is he put in the Bible? Why do we know more about him than any other ten men of the Bible? Why do we know that that man was so filled with praise? How could he be God's praise worship leader when he had so many sins in his life and it cost 70,000 lives? Because he was forgiven! We want to run in that forgiveness. We want to rejoice in that forgiveness. We want to get up and leap and dance. Our sins are forgiven. He's a glorious God. Why do you think He forgives us? Why do you think He tells us my ways are this higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts? So that we'll rejoice in that. As I said last Sunday, if it's my fault because I've presented God distorted, forgive me. I haven't, but forgive me anyway. If it's because I'm too harsh, forgive me, but I haven't been too harsh. If you read Job 34 and 35 last night, you know that Elihu was pretty harsh against Job, and Job was God's favorite man on earth, and yet Elihu just slapped him up one side and down the other for being a wicked, scornful man and for trying to give excuses for the wicked men of the earth. Just slapped him around. I haven't been too harsh. Somehow you've got really twisted in thinking about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for some, you've allowed the devil to have a place in your life by grieving about your sins. Your grief about sins doesn't add to your forgiveness. It just slows you down and denies you forgiveness. The only one that gets forgiven is the one that casts their all at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and begs God with his head down, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'll tell you, now, we just gotta, can we take the words of the Lord? Yes. That man went down to his house. I need to hear a word. Justified. I heard the word. Did everyone hear the word? Yep. That man went down to his house justified. You mean all he did was put his head down and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Yep. That's all that it takes. Do you know what kind of a transformation it takes to have that happen? For a man to put his head down and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't mention the good things he's done. He didn't mention any priest or pope. All he said is, God, I am under your authority and power because I've sinned and broken your commandments and you have every right to crush me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went down to his house justified. There are those kind of preachers and there is that kind of doctrine that thinks there's some virtue in grieving about your sins. I want to tell you that someone else has already grieved for your sins. He's already cried with strong crying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't need your tears. And thank the Lord that we have the song Rock of Ages that will tell you that your tears are absolutely worthless and they're an offense against God to think that your tears mean anything to Him about your sins when He's already forgiven you. Confess them! You say, well, I'm just waiting until I'm a little better. I think we have another song that says, if you wait until you're better, you'll never come at all. What do you mean you're waiting until you're better? Well, I'm waiting until I grieve a little more. Your grief doesn't add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can go straight to Him and know Him. And I'm sorry if some of you think that I'm really coming down to the pulpit and walking down to your pew and taking you by the hair. But I haven't done it yet, though I like to. And Nehemiah did it. So you better hope that I don't read Nehemiah 13 this coming week. 
He took them and plucked their beards and pulled their hair and smote them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. What have they done wrong? They had married an unbeliever. What about some of you that question the forgiveness that God has and the full sufficiency and sacrifice and value and worth of the death of the Son of God? It washed away our sins. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Why are you remembering them? Because it makes me holy. No, it doesn't make you holy. It makes you wicked. He doesn't remember them, so you're not like Him. That is not godly conduct. You know your spouse. Remember what I asked you last Lord's Day? Human relationships are all faulty. They're variable. You don't know what kind of a mood a person's going to be in from day to day. I don't even know what kind of a mood I'm going to be in five minutes from now. And that's me talking. You know, you don't even know me. I have a spirit that you don't know, but that spirit that I do know scares the daylights out of me. I don't even know what I'm going to be thinking like five minutes from now. And there's people that have had to live with me. Can you imagine that? There's still one that's got to live with me. And you want to say, well, I know them. They're so kind. No, you don't know them. And they're not kind. Come to me and give me their name and I'll prove they're not kind. They're nothing. You say, they give me three meals a day and I get to sleep at their address. And they got me a Ford Ranger. And I'll help you. You know why I would do that? It's not to put anyone down. I hope that we're all loving and kind and faithful to forgive everyone that sins against us. Because you know God more than you think you know Him. He always forgives. He is faithful to forgive. He doesn't have to work up forgiveness. All He has to do is be faithful to something that's transpired in the Godhead, and that is He sent His Son to pay for our sins. So it's just faithfulness. He is faithful and just. You know, when you look at the word just and you're the sinner, that is the last combination you would ever want in this universe. God is just and I'm a sinner. So why in the world does 1 John 1, 9 say, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just? How does justice have anything to do with forgiving us our sins? Justice means sins have to be paid for. It's the last thing I want to know about God. Of all the attributes I have to give you, His justice is the last one to think about in light of sinning. But it's because the sacrifice and payment has already been made for those sins, so His justice has to reflect this sin has already been paid for. Am I making any little tiny bit of progress on the road to the revelation of God to us. There's no one else like Him. So don't think like you're thinking about me forgiving you. That would be hard. You should grieve about your sins if I was the one to forgive you. And if you think anyone else in here is getting a little haughty that you're more forgiving than I am, you got the same problem I do because we've got the same parents. I just love that verse. You know, I wish I could stop and slow down on every single word about God, but when it says He is faithful and just, do you understand that? Okay. It's, 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 it's super sweet. If you understand it, you know it's sweet. Why in the world is the word, why isn't the word love in there? Why is it just? Because He has to be fair. He has to be righteous. He has to be equitable. And the sins have already been paid for. So when you confess, He doesn't have to work up the feelings. There's this pure, 
unmitigated, absolutely spotless justice that knows the sin has already been paid for and all he has to do is be fair to his nature and you're forgiven. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That sin's already been paid for. That sin's legally been put away, and God can't even remember it legally. The only way that the, the only way that sin has any influence on your relationship with God at all is only practical. Right. And his justice has already declared you free from that sin. God only sees you without sins, except in a practical way. And as soon as you confess it, practically you're restored back together again. Father and child are one again. There's no, there's no cold war. There's no stress. There's no, as long as you show me a pound of good works this next week, then I'll forgive you. There's none of that. But that's how we think. Why do you love any person? By any measure, our God is worth loving infinitely more than that person. Why do you trust a person? By any measure, God's faithfulness is infinitely better than anybody you know. Look at Acts 17. Acts 17. Paul was in Philippi for Lydia and the jailer and their respective families. When he came out of that prison, after the Lord sent an earthquake, he passed 75 miles away to Thessalonica in Macedonia, where was a synagogue of the Jews. I'm in the first verse of Acts 17. He gives us his evangelistic method when he comes into a city, and Paul, as his manner was. Why don't they ever read this and preach this, teach this at a missionary conference? This is Paul's manner of evangelism. This is how he did it. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, that is in the synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica, Macedonia, Greece. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging. That's what attorneys do in court. They argue from principles of law and from facts, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, the anointed Messiah of Israel that all you Jews have been waiting for. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. So a lot of Greek proselytes were converted as well. But then the Jews in the city that didn't believe got upset, chased Paul out of Thessalonica, and he came to Berea, and the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, and that there was a greater reception of the gospel there, But when the Jews of Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching at Berea, they chased him to that city and chased him out of Berea. So he was left at Athens and his fellow ministers were going to join him there. Verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He was getting worked up seeing all these idol worshipers. Therefore, so what did he do about it? Did he go to the orphanages? To give candy to the children to invite Jesus into their hearts? Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So first of all, he went to where Jehovah was being worshipped in the synagogues of the Jews. 
Then he found the Greek proselytes that believed the same thing. Those are the devout persons. And then he went to the marketplace where the philosophers and the Athenians would gather to hear some new thing because they were all interested in hearing some new doctrine or some new philosophy. And so there Paul had an audience of people that wanted to hear preaching. He didn't go to the jail to preach to people that didn't want to hear it. He didn't go to the brothels to preach to prostitutes that didn't want to hear it. He didn't go to orphanages or anywhere else. He didn't go to the street corner. And he didn't pass out tracts in the mall. He went to the marketplace. And there were, there's where the philosophers of the Epicurean school and the Stoic, Stoicism school found him and took him to Areopagus, which is Mars Hill. On Mars Hill, there was a temple to Mars, and next to it was the Areopagus, which is the highest court in the city of Athens. It's where they disputed anything at the highest levels. This is where their philosophers, the most learned, intellectual, educated men, would sit and adjudicate the issues of Athens, the capital of Greece, the center of learning of the world. And so we have our beloved brother Paul with the most intellectual, educated audience in the whole Bible. And we come to verse 22. And this short little section has just lit me up ten days ago because Paul is going to tell these pagans that God is not very far from every one of us and he is going to reason on a philosophical level that there's a God and he's right next door and you can just reach out and touch him and you can know him. And we live and move and have our being in him. And he argues philosophically. He doesn't quote a single verse of Scripture. And it gives us a lot of wisdom when we're dealing with certain categories that don't know the Bible or don't believe the Bible, we don't have to use the Bible. Now, Paul hardly ever dealt with any such group of people. He was hauled here. He went into the synagogues where they had the Bible and believed the Bible because that's the best audience you want. You want to start out with a monotheist. That means there's one God, and that God's Jehovah, and they're reading the Old Testament Scriptures, and Paul could explain to them, I've got the fulfillment for the whole thing. And the fulfillment was Jesus. All those prophecies about the Savior coming and the Messiah coming, Paul could show them and tell them about Jesus of Nazareth. I want to remind you that in these 10 verses here, 22 through 31, which is Paul's method of evangelism, there is no mention of the love of God. There's no quoting of John 3.16. Paul didn't wander in there in front of all those philosophers and say, I just want you to know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The closest he got to their relationship to God was, you bunch of ignorant fools, God's winked at your ignorance for the last 2,000 years, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's going to send Jesus Christ soon to judge all of you. And just to make sure you know that that judgment's going to happen, he raised him from the dead. Boy, why didn't he say he raised Jesus from the dead to justify them? And that Jesus died and rose again from the dead to pay for their sins. There's nothing like that in this chapter. Because that is not how you start out presenting the gospel to agnostic, atheistic, idolatrous, skeptics, scorners, philosophers. Right. He reasoned on their level and proved that there was a God based on their own philosophy. Mm-hmm. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, verse 22, and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. He is not ripping them yet. He's just pointing out that you have some religious ideas that are a little loose. They're a little light. There's not much substance behind them. And he explains what he meant by superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, 
And that's nice that he would give them credit for having watched some of their religious services. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now that's superstition. That means that your religion is not adequate, so you need to step outside your religion to an unknown God that has helped you in times past when you knew it wasn't one of your gods that did it. And in case there might be a God that you don't know about yet, you're going to have one to an unknown God. That's just a very light footing for philosophers to have a religion to an unknown God, so Paul calls it superstitious. He does not start off alienating his audience. That's not how he works here. He's too smooth. He's just pointing out that your religion is weak on some points, and I saw some of that weakness when I found an altar to an unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Since he's unknown to you, I'll say that we're worshiping the same God as far as that altar's concerned. Because you don't know him. <laughs> you know, now when they've named a God and they know him, they know where he came and what he does, and he's the God of agriculture, and he's got this wife and he had these babies, that kind of stuff, Paul wouldn't have said anything, I'm going to declare him to you. He's going to declare the unknown God to them. God that made the world and all things therein. He starts right out with a creator God. They knew enough that there had to be a creator. They had 370 deities, and they liked to give creation to one of them. But the apostle starts out, and I want you to notice, I'm going to just go very, very, very fast through here, clause by clause. Those philosophers were checking off every point he made, valid, 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 valid. It was correct, logical reasoning. It all made sense. It was coming toward a conclusion that they knew they were in trouble with. Valid, valid. He's going to quote one of their poets. He's going to describe their own souls that were in each one of them. <laughs> valid, valid. And then he's going to hit them with the resurrection of the dead. Right. That's what got him here. That's what he brought up in the marketplace. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So he got them checking valid, 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 and his conclusion should have been valid in their minds, but he turned their philosophy upside down and condemned them with their own methods by declaring advanced revelation that they knew nothing of, but everything down to that made sense. By inductive reasoning, the bottom line should be true. They knew that there was a God coming to judge the world. That's his eternal power and Godhead, but they give that knowledge to idols that they have made. And he said that judgment is in the hands of one Jesus of Nazareth. And he wanted you guys to know for sure that he's the one that's going to judge you by raising him from the dead. That was his invitation. Yep. And you know that was a good enough invitation for Damaris and, and Dionysius and some others to get up and follow him out. There were three responses. Some mocked him. As soon as they heard of the resurrection, well, we know there can't be a resurrection so though everything you've said is absolutely true and you quoted us and matched up with our philosophical understanding of life and the divine being, you're an idiot. Some said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. Some said, that is the truest thing I've ever heard in my life. And they got up and followed Paul out. It just gives me goosebumps and sweat right. to think about it. God that made the world and all things therein. Creator, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, sovereign, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. 
You've got temples plastered all over this city of Athens, but you know and I know that a Creator God and a Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth is not bound by four stone walls. Valid? Valid? They're all doing this in their heads. They've been taught this way their whole lives. Aristotle had given them a good foundation to hear this kind of inductive reasoning. Valid? Valid? They knew this was valid. There's no problem. He didn't have to stop and explain to them. Genesis 1.1 tells us, in no, they knew there was a creator. And he's appealing to a creator that a creator wouldn't be bound up in one of their little houses called a temple. Right. Neither is worship with men's hands. Your priest can go in and slay an ox and offer a bowl of blood and bring a goblet of wine and do anything they want. But this God that is the creator of heaven and earth and made the worlds and all things that are therein, including vineyards that bring us wine, including oxen that bring us sacrifices, is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Valid. The Creator God that's the sovereign ruler of the universe who's also providentially responsible for upholding all things, he doesn't need your help, and I don't care what uniforms they wear or robes they have, and what singing you do when you go into your temples, he's not impressed. Because he gives to all life and breath and all things. That's the providential government and support of the universe that God is our God that Paul's declaring to these ignorant philosophers has done and is doing on a daily basis. And he's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. You know, philosophers, I know it's hard for you to accept that I am a, I'm a little short, runty-looking Jew from across the Mediterranean. We have the same blood in us. And if the truth be told, those Ethiopians and others that you consider bare barbarians and haven't figured out the least thing yet, God's made us all the same. Now, he's just sticking this in here. It kind of helps out to bring philosophers down to the proper level because those men of Athens thought a little too highly of themselves. And so this God that gives life and breath to all men happened to have made the Ethiopians... And the Greeks just alike. That was hard. They didn't like anyone else they met in the whole world. And hath determined the times before appointed. Those times before appointed are the historical events affecting your nation of Greece. God raised up Alexander the Great and he allowed Alexander the Great to conquer the known world. Then he broke Alexander the Great in the, in the height of his career. His empire was divided. All these things these Greek philosophers knew all about their history because this was very recent. Right now they were reduced to a little province under the, under the authority of the Roman Empire. In 30 B.C. in the naval battle of Actium, the Greeks had been defeated by the Romans. They knew that great changes had taken place and their gods that they had sworn allegiance to when they went into battle had failed them. But there was a creator God who was the Lord of heaven and earth who had determined before the times appointed and hath determined the times before appointed. There were appointments for your nation. You know there's a sovereign creator God that has governed your nation and allowed it to start out from a bunch of goat herders to ruling the world to back to a little tiny nation of Greece. You know that if you offend Rome right now, they'd wipe you from the earth because he's also determined the bounds of their habitation. You once had the world. Your empire stretched from India to Ethiopia, and now your empire stretched, well, it doesn't stretch at all. It's just back to where you were, Macedonia. 
Philip of Macedon. That, all the, this creator God, this sovereign ruler of the universe, this providential upholder of all things, who has done these things, he's affected the affairs of nations, he's made of one blood all men in the face of the earth, that they, all men are equal, God has God raises up one nation and puts down another. He provides life and breath to all. And why? That they should seek the Lord. There's a creator and a sovereign and a providential governor of the world that wants all men to seek him. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. God seeks all men to pursue him because he is their creator and their sovereign ruler, you philosophers, they're valid, valid, valid. This creator God that's done all these things, they don't have an objection about the God that Paul's describing. They're excited to hear about the unknown God. They know that he's a Jew. Do you think they brought a blind man in from the marketplace? Or have they already heard this man's a monotheist, a Jew, and a well-trained one, brethren? You want to hear him. He knows about the one God, Jehovah, that we've heard about from those Jews. And he's going to tell, and and Paul says, I'm going to tell you that Jehovah is the God you don't know about and the God you need to know about. And this is how Jehovah operates. And they're just checking off, well, if he, you know, there's some God in charge because our gods made, made Greece great. And then our gods made Greece small. And that's not our gods because obviously they're our gods, so they love us. We have 370 and Rome's only got 40. So obviously there's some other god working here that has crushed us back to our original state. That men should seek the Lord if happily, if there might be a chance, if they could find him, feel after him and find him, though Paul says he be not very far from every one of us. And he puts himself in the category with those Athenian philosophers, the most educated intellectual audience an apostle ever spoke to. For in him, he's going to explain now what he meant by he's not very far from every one of us. He's right there. Listen, he gives, he's going to explain. For in him we live and move and have our being. All of you philosophers know that you have a being that is separate from your body. You have watched carcasses in the funeral home and looked at them and realized that the animating force and power has disappeared out of that body. The spirit's gone. You know that you have a being that is separate from your body and you know that that being is able to reason and rationalize and analyze and think and feel and and hate and love. So you know there's a super soul. You know there's a super soul that is like your soul, and you're able to know that God. You're able to feel after Him and find Him, though He be not very far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. We are that closely connected to God dealing with us as individual create creatures that He's made, as certain also of your own poets have said. Now, why didn't he quote Genesis chapter 2 where it says that God took of the dust of the earth and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul? Why didn't he use the Bible? Because they didn't know what the Bible was. They didn't care what the Bible said. He's reasoning with them on their playing field, and they're checking him off as valid all the way down. You know, people get all worked up sometimes when there's a quote made from some other source. Well, this is Paul. This is how Paul operated. He did this three times in the New Testament. He's not quoting Scripture. Why would he waste the Bible on these men? What good would the Bible do these men? 
he quotes one of their poets. And you know you're able to go and find that poet now because we can, we can speed search every combination of words and every Greek thing that's still existent in the world. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That's what the Greek minor poet said, for we are also his offspring. Paul takes that quotation from an unbelieving pagan poet of the Greeks and uses it to back up and bolster what he is saying that is true about God. You know, if the Pope of Rome says something that is true, we can use what he said that is true. He says lots of things that aren't true, and so did this Greek poet say lots of things that aren't true. But when he says something that is true, you might as well go ahead and use it. For we are also his offspring. For as much then, he's drawing a conclusion, he's working up toward his invitation. For as much then as we are the offspring of God. Now notice, that's what their poet said. Does the Bible say that we are made in the likeness and the image of God? Yes. Is Paul outside the Bible by agreeing with this man? No. He, instead of quoting the Bible, he's just quoting them. He says, you know, when you read the expression in the Bible, wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right here. This is the greatest piece of philosophical, logical reasoning in the fewest verses anywhere in the Bible. This is magnificent. Do you know what Jesus Christ had told his apostles? When you stand before men and have to give a testimony of the truth that you believe, don't meditate on it. I'll give you something for them. And he gave them something. He gave Paul something for them. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, notice he's drawing a conclusion from a pagan source. We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. After all he has said, after quoting their poet, listen, you guys know that we've got a soul and a being within us, and we are the offspring of God. So if we're God's children, then God is the super soul of the universe. God is us at a much higher level. Then what in the world are you pulling stones out of the ground with your sweat that you have to walk on and painting them with a little gold and silver and having a man design them when the God is the super soul above him that designed him, and now he's designing something, and you think that's to relate to the God that designed the man that's doing the designing? That doesn't make sense, and you know it doesn't make sense. And they checked off valid. Valid. And the times of the... Verse 30, the philosophers would say, well, we've got away with this for 2,000 years. Our, our goat-herding granddaddies that lived in these mountains of Macedonia... They always believed it this way. They, they communicated to us the 370 deities that we have today. Here, Paul has an answer for them. The times of this ignorance, God winked at. God overlooked the fact that your fathers were such idiots that you know that what I'm telling you is truth, and they didn't believe the truth that I've just explained to you thus far, that there's not a temple that can hold a real God, and he's not to be likened unto gold or silver or some piece of stone that's been fashioned to look like something, you know that's not true. Why did your dads do it? Because God, the one I'm telling you about, let you do it. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And that's the message Paul took into the whole world. And here he had himself an audience, and this is his invitation. God has winked at all your ancestors being so foolish and blind and darkened and stupid when it came to religion. But now he's commanding everyone to repent 
including the barbarians of Ethiopia that are made of the same blood you are, now repent. Because you had better repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And what is that day? That is the day of judgment that is coming upon this world. So the apostle brings in the day of judgment. He does not bring in the day of Calvary. He brings in the day of judgment upon these philosophers and tells them that the judgment is in the hands of a man. It's in the hands of the man Christ Jesus. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Paul was brought to this place because he had mentioned the resurrection of the dead. Instead of starting out by saying, Jesus had to die and be buried and rise again the third day according to the Scriptures, like he would say to a Christian church in 1 Corinthians 15, he starts out with God that created the heaven and all things that are therein and works down to where the resurrection comes in. And what does he mention about the resurrection? Not that that's how our sins were put away with the resurrection of Jesus after three days in the grave. But that proves that this man that God so delighted in and raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand is going to judge you Greeks. Now you have a chance right now to repent. Your daddies and granddaddies got away with it because God Jehovah, the one I just told you about, the monotheistic God of the Jews, lets you get away with it. Because he had one nation on earth, as you well know from your historical studies, and it wasn't Greece, it was Israel. You know that the people of Jehovah were the Israelites, were the Jews. That God lets you get away with it. Now he's commanding all men everywhere to repent. And then verses 32 through 34 tell us that when they heard it, there were three responses. Some mocked, others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Paul left. His time with them was over. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite. Why do you think he'd have been called the Areopagite? He spent his whole life in this highest court of Athens, and he was leaving with the nickname of Dionysius the Areopagite. Now he's going to be Dionysius the Christian. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Do you know how far of an advantage you have over these Greek philosophers at knowing God? He is not very far from every one of us. Paul didn't write that to a Christian church. Paul wrote that to a bunch of pagan, idolatrous, ignorant philosophers of Greece. They seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And you know Dionysius and Damaris, what they got a load of, as soon as Paul got away from there, they got to hear a whole lot more about the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior from sin. You have an advantage far over all of them. God had ignored Gentile ignorance for 4,000 years, but in the days of the apostles and every day since, he's been commanding all men everywhere to repent. And all men everywhere should repent. They have, they have heard the gospel preached that there is a creator God in heaven by the natural creation. Most of them have heard the word of the gospel in some degree. And very few repent and very few care. And I hope that we care so much that we want to look at this and see everything in there and where, how it's backed up in the Bible, why Paul would say it, how Paul was reasoning, what was in Paul's mind, and how did it convert men? Because it started with a creator God that they did not know about, Jehovah, whom we know about, and everything down forward. We have prophecies about Greece. Do you know that you can find the name Greece in your Bible, penned down by Daniel, 
in 500 B.C.? Go try to find Greece in the annals of human history in 500 B.C. They were goat herders in Macedonia. The Persian Empire and the Babylonian empires ruled the world. Our Bible knew all about them, and God had determined beforehand the times of their successes and the times of their losses and the boundaries of their nation, and it is still the same today. They expanded it for a few short years, and then it came crushing back. God is only known by revelation, my brethren, to get past these philosophers from creation, from providence, from historical dealings with their nation. There's a whole lot more that we can know about God. Without revelation, and I'm closing right now, without revelation, without God revealing himself to us, he is above us, he is beyond us, and he is far out of reach of us knowing him if he did not tell us about him. All Paul dealt with with these philosophers was that there is a super soul in the universe who was a creator, who was a divine being that had made all things and governed the affairs of all nations, and he could not be worshipped in a temple or with idols. Do you understand that? That He didn't go past that. He did not get into all of his attributes, though he mentioned some of them. He did not get into his relational attributes of love or anything that we're going to be getting into. But we would not know those things if God had not revealed them to us. Do you know that you cannot know another person? You cannot even know the name of another person. You cannot even know the phone number of another person. Unless they give it to you. Do you know how many guys have wanted to know the phone number of a girl? But they can't even get a phone number of another person without that girl letting them have the phone number. Do you understand that? You don't know anything about anyone unless they reveal themselves to you. When we think about, forget the phone number, forget their name. You can't even know a person's name unless they introduce themselves to you. How about their abilities? How about their character, their love, their hate, their goals, their fears? How would you ever know those things unless they were, you would have to sit down for hours and hours and hours and some of you would just take a lifetime and then you still wouldn't know them. To get out all those, all those aspects of your being. How, how can we know God? He has to introduce Himself to us. And brethren, we're going to get to that. He has introduced Himself to us. He has introduced Himself in creation. He's introduced Himself to us in providence, His works in history, His works in the Bible, His judgments in the Bible, His judgments in human history, His judgments in our lives, His chastening in our lives. We know Him because He has introduced Himself to us. The rational lives that we have, we were made in the likeness and the image of God. We have a spirit being inside of us that is disconnected from our bodies. Though it's in our bodies right now, it's going to leave our bodies at the moment of death and our body's going to stay here. We know that about God's spirit. And so we learn, we can learn so much about God and He's introduced Himself to us. We see the changed lives of saints that are living for Him. We can read the scriptures that tell us in detail things about Him and the ministry of the Word of God that helps us. And we were given eternal life to know Him. And that eternal life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ reveals God to us at a far deeper level than anything else. And it's through Him that we want to know God and we can be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's where I began a few hours ago when I showed you from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27 that Jesus knew the Father and Jesus would reveal the Father to whomsoever He will. And He's revealed Him to us. And if we'll walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and see in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ the glory of God, we can know about God. We are so far 
Paul did not quote a verse of the Bible to those philosophers. You have 31,101 verses that tell you everything about that God. Those philosophers did not deserve it. The philosophers that stood up and then went out and got baptized by the Apostle Paul, then they deserved. And they got a, they got a little library, a little divine library that crushed everything in the city of Athens that introduced them to relational terms like this. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And do you know who would have said amen? Dionysius, the Areopagite. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.